Hello friends, and thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon from Spring Hill Baptist Church in Millport, Alabama. We're currently working through the Gospel of John in our sermon series entitled, That You May Have Life. Our prayer is that this time in God's Word would be edifying for you. God bless. So this morning as we come to the Word of God together, we're going to be picking up in John 19. We're going to look at 16b through 30. But before we get to that, I just want to take a moment and just kind of highlight where we were last week in John 19 as Caleb was preaching. His his overall idea of the message as well as two points was there was two personal principles in Jesus' sentencing. The first one is that even in tragedy, God is at work. The second thing was, and it's really a question, is that with my daily choices, who do I hail as king? And all of this comes from the first 16 verses of chapter 19 where we see this delivering over of Jesus to be crucified by Pilate and the denial of his people of him being the true king. And this morning, as we move away from this arrest and trial of Christ, we're going to approach some scriptures that we have heard probably hundreds of times, most of us. We're going to approach scriptures that is the crucifixion of Christ. And though we approach God's word in a reverent way each and every week that we gather, I want us to especially do so this morning. Because there is no greater injustice that was done to an individual that has ever lived than what we're going to read about this morning. And so, as we approach it this morning, let's start in verse 16b. It says, So they took Jesus, and He went out, bearing His own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Therefore, they crucified Him, and with Him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote of an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it is shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciples, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hippus branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come now and my prayer is that as we have looked at these verses in the Gospel of John that you have provided for us, that we don't approach this scripture as old news or as anything that we feel like we don't need to hear now, but rather, Father, we would approach this as the biggest and greatest injustice that was done and not done to someone that deserved it, Father, but to someone that was perfect and sinless. God, I thank you for the gospel power that is found in these verses. And I pray now as we approach it, God, that you would give us the heart and the ears to hear what it is. And God, that you would take me and you would place me behind your word. And God, that the things that I say and the things that I explain, Father, would be grounded in your truth and in your truth alone. We love you and we thank you in your son's perfect and holy name. Amen. This morning, as we've read these verses, the main thing I want to just explain to us is that the sovereign and suffering king, this is what we've seen in the last few chapters, is that the sovereign and suffering king died the death I deserved. He received the mockery I was due, took on the injustice that I earned, displayed compassion that I did not deserve, and accomplished salvation I did not deserve. Thus, we should rightly surrender all and devote our lives to being his disciple while trusting he is the one that will not only save us, but maintain our salvation. Therefore, while we seek to work out our salvation, we rest in the finished work of Christ. The reason why this is so important as we look at these verses is that when we think of the theme of John, and I know we had it on the screen a little while ago, is that it's this idea that you may have life. And this is found in John 20. We're not going to read it or anything of that nature. But it's this idea that we would believe that God, that Jesus is God, and in believing that Jesus is God, that we would then trust in Him, and in trusting in Him that we would have life. This is why John is writing this entire letter. And so why that's important for us to understand and look at is because when we look at John's letter to uh, the to his recipients of the gospel of the, the life and death and resurrection of Christ, it is much, much different than many of the other gospels. And we see that specifically in the text this morning. We see that John adds some details that are not anywhere else in the gospel accounts, and then he omits some things that others highlight. Just a, a few examples of, of what he's adding here is that this controversy that was called by the inscription. John is the only one that tells us about this. Then we also see that he quotes the Old Testament proclaiming that Christ fulfilled the prophecies of the Old. But we also see that this care and compassion that Jesus shows towards his mother and his disciples, why at the brink of death? And then the other thing and the most important thing we're going to look at this morning that John points out that there's nowhere else explained this way is the last cry of Jesus' death, which is, it is finished. Now, what John omits 
was kind of important for us, but extremely, extremely important when we look at the last one, is that this, uh, when you read the other Gospels, we see that there's this guy named Simon of Cernia helping Jesus carry his cross. But then we also see that they, uh, the repentance of one of the criminals beside him. But the primary thing, though, is that John does not include any of the gruesome or gory details of the nature of the Roman government's capital punishment of being crucified on the cross. What I mean by that is that we don't see John explaining how Jesus was beat. We don't see the nailing on the cross. We don't see any of those details. And as we approach John and we try to ask this question, is why is John's letter so much different than many of the other Gospels? And it's as I just read a minute ago, is that to show us that the sovereign and suffering king died the death we deserved, received the mockery we were due, took on the injustice that we earned, displayed compassion that we did not deserve, and accomplished salvation that we do not and did not deserve. And so as we go further in depth into the scriptures this morning, I hope that we do not approach this crucifixion of Jesus as if it is old news or boring or even repetitive, but rather understand that it is the good news of the salva- of our salvation. So this morning, the first thing we're going to see is that the sovereign and suffering king died the death I deserved. We see that in John 16 through 7 through 18 here it says so they took Jesus and they went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull which is an Aramaic called Galgatha there they crucified him and with two others one on either side Jesus between them now I mentioned this earlier but we don't see that this one of the um, criminals repentance here because what John is focusing on here and this is what we're going to see throughout the entire uh, set of scriptures this morning is what John is focusing on is the sovereignty and the kingship and the godness of Jesus and so he's not highlighting anything else going around them but who Christ is and so before we go any farther, we need to understand who this is that is dying on the cross. I know many and most of us here would know this, but this is God in the flesh. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 3. I, I, we, we were walking through Hebrews as a college class on Thursday nights, and I read this last week as a call to worship. But we see that in Hebrews chapter 1, it highlights some things about Jesus that I could not help but think about as I was approaching uh, this, this topic this morning. It explains that, that he was the one through who? Also, he created the world, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and that he is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. So what we need to rightly understand, first and foremost, before we even get to any of the details of this encounter and this death, is that this is God himself on the cross. And because this is God himself on the cross, this is the most wicked and terrible thing that we're going to see in all of Scripture but yet is the most amazing and most grace-filled thing we will ever read in our lives. So we see that in verse 16, he begins by saying, so they took Jesus. Now, the the main thing I want to highlight as I I talk about this is simply what we've seen throughout the entire book, uh, but also specifically in chapter 18 and 19 so far, is that Jesus is sovereignly in control. That they may have him arrested. They may be taking him through all of these steps in the, the legality of their time and day. 
They may even have control to take him and to lead him to be crucified, but they are not in control. That Jesus is the one ultimately in control of every circumstance that happens. And we're going to see that clearly as we walk through the rest of this. Because we're going to see twice that Jesus does some very specific things so that scriptures would be fulfilled. The next thing we see in this set of scriptures says, Burying his own cross, they crucified him with two others. Now, to understand what's going on here is that Jesus is bearing his own cross. When we think of a cross, we think much like the one behind me, that it looks almost similar to like a lowercase t. Uh, commonly, it would look like that or a capital T. And really, when it's saying that Jesus buried his own cross here, well, the tradition of the day and the time is that they would have the horizontal part of the cross that they would make the, the criminal carry through the streets and up a hill. And then when they received, when they got to the place, the, the skull, uh, what they would do then was they would lay uh, it all down and they would nail him to it and they would uh, raise him up so that everybody in the city could see what this man or what this woman did. And so when it says that Jesus is carrying his cross, he's not literally carrying the whole thing. Rather, he's carrying the horizontal part, this part of the cross. And John doesn't highlight that later on, this guy named Simon helps Jesus with the cross. Because what John is wanting us to understand and see in this text is that Jesus is doing something. He has taken his cross, but in all reality, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what he is doing here is taking our cross. Because he is the only one that does not deserve the cross. He is being placed in between two individuals that were criminals that were deserving of the punishment. And not only that, but he is the perfect and holy God in flesh and does not deserve the death in which he is about to go through. And he is the only one that had ever, that was and will live, that was not deserving of this cross. And so what we see in this first set of scriptures is that the sovereign and suffering king was taken by Roman God to be beaten and hung upon a cross. And in this, the perfect one died the death he did not deserve so that God would give life to those who did not deserve it. Thus, Jesus died the death that you and I deserve. The second thing we're going to see is in 19 through 22. And it's that the sovereign and suffering king received the mockery I was due. Now, before I read this, I want us to, to just take in consideration, once again, everything that we look at is that this is God himself in flesh. Okay, So as we look at this entire story, that this is God in the flesh receiving what is happening to him. And so as we look at 19, it says, Pilate also wrote, a, wrote an inscription and put on the cross, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. 
Now what's going on here is that there was a tradition when one was crucified, what they would do is they would take, uh, they would take and engrave on something, the crimes of the criminal, and what they would do is they would wear it around their neck as they were being paraded through the city with the cross on their shoulders. And what they would do is this was a, a, a means of not only mockery, but a means of explaining and showing everyone around them what this man did. And so there's really some threefold purposes that we see in Pilate's life and what he is doing here. The first thing is simply to show the people the criminal and what he had done. But the second thing and the primary thing here is that Pilate, as you remember in John 19, 1 through 16, was really being blackmailed into crucifying Christ. Because they, they took and they said they don't, he doesn't worship the tree, he doesn't worship, uh, Caesar. And so therefore, if you don't kill him, if you don't crucify him, we will turn you over to Caesar. They're blackmailing uh, Pilate into crucifying Jesus. And so what Pilate is doing here is really a power move. That he's trying to take back power and explain that he is, he is in control of the situation and in control of the Jews. And so he refuses to change this and he uh, purposely wrote what he wrote. Now what's so significant about what Pilate writes isn't the motive behind Pilate. It's not even the response of the Jews to what was written on this plaque that was around his neck and then placed on the cross. What's so important is what Christ and what the the Heavenly Father meant in this plaque and the purpose of the sign. Because what we see it said is that Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. See, in all reality, this was the most true thing going on in the entire crucifixion. And it was the proclamation of who Jesus was. It was done in mockery. It was done in shame. But in all reality, it was true to the T that this was the king of the Jews and the king of all of the world. And so for Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews. And the cross was the means of his ex, uh, exaltation and manner in which he would be glorified. There's a guy named F.F. F. Bruce. And he explains it this way is that the crucified one is the true king, the kingliest king of all, because it was he who stretched on the cross. He turns the obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and reigns from a tree. Is that this may be a sign of mockery, and this was the mockery that you and I deserve, but this was a moment in which Jesus is proclaiming ultimately that he is king of all, that he could even take an instrument of death and proclaim his glory through it. And so we see that the sovereign and suffering king received the mockery in his death that you and I were due. 23 through 24 moves us to the next thing we're going to see in this text is that the sovereign and suffering king took on injustice that I earned. 23 says, when the soldiers was crucified, Jesus then took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part of the each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece, top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. As I mentioned every other point so far, that we cannot, cannot forget that this is the innocent one on the cross. 
And what he's doing here is he's receiving this injustice of these soldiers taking him and stripping him naked, placing him on a cross, and then taking his garments and separating them for their own pleasure. They would take his belt, most likely his sandals, head covering, and robe, and they split them between the four of them. But then it came to his tunic, which was this seamless piece of cloth that would start and and was just this complete piece. And they refused to break it up and tear it and to split it between the four of them because it was valuable. And in doing this, what they then do is cast lots to see who get it. They, they essentially are betting and seeing who would receive this piece of garment of the one they were crucifying. It's, but this was a common practice. This is what we should understand about this, is that this was a common practice in this day and time, is that the one they were crucifying, they would take all of their belongings, they would split it between the Roman guards that were the ones that were overseeing this crucifixion. And commonly, they would even cast lots to see who would get what. And what I want us to see in this is not only the injustice that Jesus is going through, this the injustice that you and I earned, but also that Jesus is sovereign in this. And it, it may not seem like he is, because it's just a practice that they have been doing for years and years before this moment of his death. But we have a God that is sovereign and a God that is working out his perfect will to send his only son into the world to die the death that we all deserve, right? This is what we see unfolding in this story is that we have a God in control and working sovereignly through every area of this aspect. So I would argue here is that the Romans don't invent this and come up with this for their own pleasure. Rather, they implement this portion of the crucifixion so that God would fulfill his scriptures. That is much of what we saw last week, that God is the God that takes terrible and horrific things and turns them for the good of His glory and the good of those who follow Him. And we see ultimately in that, and how I can confidently say that, is that in verse 24, John quotes Psalms twenty-two eighteen. This moment that points to Jesus' death, that points to them dividing and separating his clothes and his, clo- his clothes and his tunics and all of these things, hundreds of years before Rome was even established. God is sovereignly in control of the death of his son. And so ultimately what we should walk away with is understanding that this sovereign and suffering king took on the injustice that you and I earned. Next thing we see is that the sovereign and suffering king displayed compassion that I did not deserve. John 25 through 27 says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clappus, and Mary Magdalene. And Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby and said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. So we see that in a moment of Christ's crucifixion, this is something that's not seen in any other gospel. In a moment of Christ's crucifixion, there are five individuals that are standing nearby, four of them being women, one being his mother, one being his aunt, and two other Marys that we see throughout Scripture. 
What's so significant and what's, what's so interesting about this is that when I, when I knew I was going to preach this text, when I knew I was going to preach 16 through 30, Caleb and I was talking about it and I expressed to him the same thing I'm going to tell you this morning, is I had no idea why John included this here. When I read this, it made no sense to me. Why would John break up the, the, the narrative of Christ's crucifixion to show this small little detail of what this conversation between his mother and his disciple? Why would John tell us of this? No. We really don't know. We really don't know exactly what's going on here, right? There could be a legal transaction. There's a lot going on in this just single moment. But what is clear about this is that what is widely believed in this day and time is that Jesus' father, Joseph, had already been di- had already died. And so therefore, Jesus being the oldest child of Mary's was the one that was responsible for her livelihood. It was the one that provided and took care of her. And we see the absence of his brothers here, possibly because they had not believed in him yet. And he was being crucified, a gruesome death that only criminals deserved. So possibly here what we see is that his entire family has abandoned him except for his mother. And in the moment of his death, he looks out, he sees his mother and understands that she needs compassion in this moment. She needs one to provide and take care of her when I can't physically in an earthly way. And so he looks out to his mother and says, woman, here's your son. Then he looks at the disciple and what she loved, which coincidentally is John, and says, and here is your mother. And then we see that there's this compassion displayed in the moment of his death. Now, it's not the same for us. We're not Jesus' mother. It's a totally different situation. But is this not the center theme of the entire gospel? Is not the center theme of the entire moment of the cross is that the compassionate, saving Lord of Lords is the one that would look out on his creation and have compassion on those who do not deserve it? So I, I, I argue, and I, I personally believe here, is that John includes this detail to show his compassion for people. And in showing his compassion for people, we should rightly understand that this right here is the beginning of the differences of the five points I'm trying to make. The first three points are things that we earned that we did not deserve. That he did not deserve. The things that we earned that Christ did not deserve. And what we're about to see in these next two things are the things in which Christ earned that we did not deserve. And so first and foremost is this idea of Christ displaying his compassion that I did not deserve and that you did not deserve. The last thing we're going to look at this morning is 28 through 30. And this is, in my personal opinion, the most important part of the entire sermon. It says, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on his hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. One thing that's so significant about John's encounter, rather than the different gospels, is that when the other Gospels, we see this moment in which these people give Jesus this, this wine, this thing to drink, and he refuses it. Because what it would have done would have dulled the pain of the cross. It would have dulled the pain of 
the wrath of God on Christ in this moment. So Christ refuses it. But in the moment of his death, he does request something to drink. And he's not doing this because, not just because he's thirsty. He is thirsty. He's not lying. He's not deceiving in this moment. But he's doing this to also fulfill Scripture. And this Scripture that he's fulfilling is also found in Psalms. It's just another picture that Christ is sovereign even in his death. That he's, as he was nailed to a tree, he was sovereign over all and in control of the situation. We see that even more fully as you move on. And it says that after he took this sour wine, it says that he said, it is finished. And that he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. We don't have a king. We don't have a savior that was killed by human hands. We have a king. We have a savior. We have a suffering and sovereign king that perfectly took on the wrath of God. And in doing so, gave up his own life. And in doing so, he accomplished the salvation that you nor I could earn. We see that clearly in this statement. It is finished. Now, I'm taking Greek. I'm not great at Greek. The youth over here could tell me this word better than I can. But tell to sigh. I just butchered it. It's this word here that translates to, to it is finished. What's so important about that is that that's the best way of translating it into English. But there's something that's lost in translation that we just don't get as modern Christians that don't know Greek. Because this word, is, is the root verb here is telai. And really what it means and what it denotes to is this earning of a task. And in religious contexts, it's fulfilling one's religious obligations. So when Jesus says it is finished, what he's saying here is that the religious obligations is done. But what's so significant about this is that it's not that he is the one fulfilling his own obligations, but rather he is the one fulfilling the obligations of all that would believe and trust in him. So in this moment of saying it is finished, what he is saying is that I have accomplished salvation for those that will believe and trust in me. That it is done. And in that, in this fact that what Christ does, in doing things that we deserved and accomplishing things that we do not deserve, there's some just understanding and applications I think in realizing that Jesus finished it all on the cross that he accomplished salvation on the cross that it draws us and it pushes us to the first thing is for the one here that is struggling with that assurance of salvation that one here that that just time in and time out when you fall into sin or time in and time out when you, you get down and you struggle with the idea that maybe you're not truly saved. My first response would be is maybe you should seek pastoral counsel from your pastor. 
But ultimately, if you're here and this is you, you're that individual that struggles with this idea that you aren't truly saved, but you can reflect and and respond to a moment in your life where you know you gave your life to Christ and you have trusted in Him, but you keep falling into sin, so therefore you don't understand and know how God would save you. That when Christ says it is finished, He's not only talking about our salvation, but He's talking about the maintaining of our salvation. So we trust and hold on to the assurance of our salvation because Christ has finished it for us. But what about for the individual here that that knows Christ and maybe that's not their struggle. Maybe their struggle is an assurance of salvation. but, But what about you? What about me? First and foremost, that we go and tell the good news of the gospel. This is the most amazing yet most horrifying set of scriptures in all of scripture because what it is is a perfect and holy God accomplished something that we did not deserve. So therefore, we are called to go therefore and tell everyone about it. Why? Because it is their only hope. But much more than that, when we reflect on the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, It should bring to us an understanding that we should raise our families and lead our families in light of the gospel. It means that we as men would raise our children and lead our wives in ways that God calls us to. That as wives, you would submit to the leadership of your husband and you would together raise your families correctly. As single men and single women, it means that you would rightly seek relationships that are pure and holy. That when you go and work your jobs, you would do it in light of the gospel. That you would do it not in light of your boss or in light of a paycheck, but you would do it in light that there was one that has saved and redeemed you, therefore you work for His glory, not yours. It means when you go to school, you don't cheat, you don't lie, you don't act up, you don't do things incorrectly, but you give school all that you have. Why? Not for A's, not for B's, not to do your best, but rather to give God glory in everything that you do as students. For those that play sports, even that can bring God glory. So you go and you play sports, you give it all that you are for the glory of God. For those that coach sports, that means that you do it in the light of the gospel. That you don't yell and you don't, you don't, well, you have to yell to some extent, right? But you don't, you don't do things out of injustice. But you were portraying who Christ is in the way that you're leading young men and young women to live out this sport, but to ultimately live it out for God's glory. I don't know what your thing is. You may not fall into any of these categories, but ultimately to do everything that you do in your life in light of the gospel. Because he is the one that has redeemed and saved us, yet we did not deserve it. Maybe there's someone here that is seeking to earn their salvation. That you're really only here because this is what you do on Sunday mornings, right? It's what good Christian men and women do. They come to church. They, they say the right little things. They don't do this long list of wrong things. Maybe you're here and you think that being here or reading your Bible, or even telling people about the gospel, or even going on mission trips is going to somehow redeem and save you at the end of your life, that maybe you did just good enough to receive salvation. Quit it. There is no way of salvation other than the sacrifice of Christ. 
Or maybe you're here and you know you're lost. The appropriate response to this is that we have a king, we have a savior that is sovereignly in control of his own death and suffers it for our sake. So surrender to him. He is the only one worthy. He's the only one that can redeem and save you. Don't trust in anything else of this world. So this morning as I come to an end, I'm going to revisit John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. In this we see that we have a sovereign and suffering King that died the death we all deserved. He received the mockery that we would do. He took on the injustice that we earned. He displayed the compassion we did not deserve. And he accomplished salvation that we do not earn. Thus, we rightly surrender all and devote our lives to being his disciples while trusting he is the only one that can save, but also maintain our salvation. Therefore, we simply work out our salvation while we rest in his finished work. So Leanne comes and leads us. My hope and my prayer this morning is that through the Word and the Spirit of God that He would cause His disciples to rest in the finished work of the sovereign and suffering King, that He would empower His disciples to go therefore and proclaim the death of the resurrection of the suffering and Savior, sovereign and suffering Savior, and for many that He would cause them to humbly surrender to this King. We want to thank you for listening to this week's sermon. For more information, you can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Spring Hill Baptist. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. as we seek to make much of Jesus and loving above all else.